You're listening to Mission Lab. Mission Lab. From our living new man, Ben Here's our parents, Sean and Camille Brace. Hello, everyone. This is Mission Lab. Thank you for tuning in once again to another episode. I am here by myself at my in my living room. I have a special guest on the show with me this week. Once again, we've been having a lot of guests lately, but I'm really, really, really excited to have uh, Dr. Anthony Bosman, who is, I'm just going to tell you right now, is I, I'm just going to say he is the smartest guest we've ever had on the show. Um, I'm sure he would be very hesitant to take such a title, but uh, and we've had a lot of really, as we say here in Maine, wicked smart people, but Anthony is a very, very uh, studied and educated and well-read uh, individual. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Anthony here before I have him speak. Uh, I think Anthony, you and I maybe became acquainted with each other three or four years ago or so. Um, when you reached out and invited me to speak in Houston, I never ended up going, but, uh, you, Anthony, were a student there getting your PhD at Rice University, right? That's right. Yes. And so you have your PhD in mathematics, I believe, if that's correct. I know you you are a professor of mathematics at my alma mater in Michigan at Andrews University. And uh, so Anthony has his PhD in mathematics. He has an undergraduate degree from Stanford, I believe. And uh, just a really, really, really bright guy who's done a lot of really, really good thinking. And um, we finally met, you and I, Anthony, face-to-face at that... uh, wonderful institution in Michigan called Baguette de France. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We sh- I, I was going to say we shared a sandwich there, but that would be <laughs> a little a little inaccurate because I had two sandwiches as we sat there because uh, that that's one of my favorite restaurants in the world. I only get there every five years or so. But anyway, um, Anthony, thank you for being on the, uh, on the podcast. And so, yeah, maybe you could just before I, I get into some more questions, just tell me a little bit about your background in addition to what I just shared. Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you, Sean, for um, having me on. I've been a big fan of your podcast and just following some of your thinking over the last several years, as you noted. And um, as for the introduction, shame on you for being so generous and shame on me for enjoying it so much. So, <laughs> but um, what was that? It's well-deserved. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as for my background, um, as you know, the mathematics has kind of been the theme of the last decade or so of my life. Uh, actually, ever since a child, you know, I was the math geek. I went off to college, enjoyed uh, mathematics, uh, went on to graduate school and have been doing it ever since. And so that has been a major theme of my life. But uh, another theme of my life, particularly in college, was um, how does my thinking about mathematics and truth connect to my Christian faith. And so I was raised in a Christian family. And so going to college was kind of this time of wrestling with, okay, how do I begin to um, 
fit all these pieces together? Do I want to hold on to this Christian worldview? Um, let me test this against some other ideas I'm coming in contact with. And so that was a major theme of wrestling uh, throughout college and even into graduate school of trying to see uh, what does the Christian faith do for me? Is it able to make sense of the world? Is it something worth holding on to? Or are there perhaps some better alternatives? That's awesome. And and maybe we'll unpack this a little bit more, but just right, right off the bat up front, um, although you were raised in a home that was Christian to some extent, I know you said your mother was maybe your dad, not as much. Um, you didn't simply inherit Christianity without reflection. You went through a time of wrestling in your own life, right? That's right. And it's actually my freshman year of college, I took a philosophy class. Um, it was called Truth, One, Many, or None. And so just a reflection on the nature of truth. And and I think that really challenged me that whatever I believe, I want to make sure it's true, right? And so I, I was intentional to begin to engage with other worldviews. I took a trip my freshman year. I spent spring break, a, a week long, just going to different religious communities, trying to understand more about how they make sense of the world, intentionally forming relationships with people who have different worldviews, uh, and just trying to bring my beliefs into contact from between classes, friendships, all these different avenues, books, in order to expose myself to as many different beliefs as I could to see, okay, does this Christianity thing hold up? Or, or is it actually um, perhaps best replaced by a different way of making sense of the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really awesome to hear. I know that someone like me, I've been, you know, basically all along committed to Christianity in some fashion. And so to know that there are others who have, not that I haven't explored, but you know, had a more uh, acute, uh, you know, uh, confrontation, so to speak, with with challenges to the faith is really neat to hear as well. So, Anthony, a few weeks ago, we were in communication about having you on the podcast, and we were thinking about going a certain direction. And then I contacted you just about something else, and we said, well, maybe we should go that direction instead for the podcast. And so, um, I've been having a lot of conversations with people who are both um, on the discipleship journey in a more conscious way, as well as others who are just sort of considering the Christian faith for the first time. And there seems to be a common thread throughout many of those conversations, and that is this sort of, um, I don't know if we'd say conflict, but these lingering questions about how faith and science intersect and whether they do intersect. And um, specifically, and, and I know you want to stay in the in the kind of bird's eye view, and I want to kind of drill, drill down into some of the more specifics, but I'm having a lot of conversations with people lately, especially about uh, evolution and creation and whether there can be a reconciliation between sort of this evolutionary paradigm and what we would maybe consider the biblical paradigm. Um, and so I don't know how you want to tackle that mm-hmm. right off the bat, but mm-hmm. just the idea of, of as we are missional, as we are connecting with people, how do we uh, respond to and interact with people in general about science and faith, but also maybe more specifically uh, what is perceived sometimes as a conflict between evolutionary theory and what Christians have traditionally uh, thought of when it relates to these matters. 
Excellent. I think it's a great question, not just for those who may be considering coming into the Christian faith, but the, those who are just maturing their faith. I'm trying to see if the childhood faith grows up uh, and is able to wrestle with some of the new ideas they're engaging with. I have a number of friends when they go to college or university, um, they begin to wrestle with these questions as well. And so I think this is a wonderful theme. And I'm glad that to hear that you're talking with people who are actively reflecting upon this, right? They recognize there's something to think through here. There's something to wrestle with. And I'm really glad that people are engaging with this. Um, there's a lot of directions we can go. The, the first is maybe I'll just begin to try and define some of the terms that we've used so we can be consistent throughout. You mentioned yes. um, faith and science, and then evolution came into it. And so maybe we can take a moment on each one of those. So when mm -hmm. we talk about faith, I would want to um, try to take a moment to ask, what do we mean by faith? So there are different views. I often find that my secular friends think that when I say faith, it means um, believing in something despite of lack of evidence, or perhaps believing in something contrary to evidence, right? But as a Christian, this is not my understanding of faith. My understanding of faith is not, I believe it despite a lack of evidence, or I believe it because it's contrary to the evidence. Rather, I would understand faith more in terms of commitment, and so the best um, example I can perhaps give is uh, if you want to go skydiving, when you go skydiving, there's a moment where you take a literal leap of faith. You're jumping out of the plane, right? And, mm -hmm. and what you do at that moment is you're deciding to act. And so faith is very action-based. You're taking an act, but that act is not despite the evidence. You probably have some pretty good reasons of why you're jumping. You believe your parachute's going to hold up. You've looked at the reviews of this company, you know, not too many people have died when they jumped out of the plane, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have a pretty good body of information that's informing that act, and yet the act goes beyond the information because now you actually have to do something with it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think the emphasis I want to put there is faith is not just a matter of mental consent, but it's saying, I'm going to choose to live my life this way. I'm going to choose to relate to God this way. I'm going to relate to the world in this way in response to what I believe to really compelling reasons to do so. As for science, uh, historically, the word science has simply meant knowledge. So science comes from the Latin scientia, which means knowledge. And so you have classically theology was considered the queen of the sciences, which might kind of seem awkward today, but that's because today we've narrowed the meaning of science to the natural sciences primarily. So when we talk about science, we often mean just the study of the natural world. And so what, what we talk about faith and science, what we're actually probably doing now is we're limiting the meaning of science to be how does our confidence in God relate to our study of the natural world around us? So maybe those mm. are some, some terms to begin mm -hmm. with. And then there's the word of evolution you brought up. And I think this is the most confusing word of all because it's used in so many different contexts. Uh, you could simply mean evolution as natural selection, the, the, the understanding that um, different species who have different advantages, uh, if you have some something that makes you more fit, something that will increase your ability to reproduce, then you're more likely to survive, you're more likely to pass on offsprings, so your genetics are more likely to appear in the next generation. Um, you know, this is non-contestable, widely agreed upon. You can look at bacteria, you can look at like, the flu each year, and it's pretty clear that natural selection is taking place. So if by mm. evolution you simply mean there's some level of natural selection from generation by generation, those species that are able to... Uh, that are well uh, adjusted to the um, environment, that they're more likely to survive. 
Absolutely. You know, that's, that's not contestable. But if by evolution, you mean a much broader way of, of making sense of the world, that is an entirely naturalistic uh, paradigm. So I would call this naturalism. That is that all life, all that uh, is today came from a process that was on order. There was no intentionality behind it. That it is a complete a description of where we came from, almost as a, as a meta narrative, as, as the big story of where we are and where we're going. That's another uh, meaning which some people mean by evolution, and that's where the Christianity would have to push back. It would say, you know, we have a mm-hmm. different story of where we came from. We have a different understanding. We see intentionality. We see purpose, and so there would be um, some tension on that level, but not on the level of do we see within an individual species or an individual um, population some natural selection taking place. Good. That's yeah. That's a very helpful distinction. So you're like you say with that last issue, you're definitely drawing a distinction between two paradigms, two mm. worldviews. Not necessarily the details within each framework or each paradigm. Uh, those can be kind of taken on a case by case basis. Um, so and and I you know again I'm I'm eager to kind of get down to some of the more details. But um, so for speaking of Say, I mean, if we're using evolution in its um, non-threatening uh, sense, in the, in the sense of you know, this is not necessarily a, something that is uh, is opposed to scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what which things in the that paradigm? Again, not we're not talking about a naturalistic uh, paradigm that is free from any theistic involvement. Uh, and, and and any uh, sense of origins, but which parts of say evolutionary theory, again to use that term, um, might be really threatening to one's belief in scripture, and which ones can we kind of uh, can we kind of harmonize? I guess you could say um, with a scriptural worldview. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, certainly as Christians, we get flu shots. As Christians, you know, we do medicine. We believe that um, in order to understand why bacteria develop resistance to antibiotics, right, we need to bring in some account that's going to appeal to an evolutionary explanation that's on this level of natural selection. And so we're very comfortable with it on this level. Um, mm-hmm. It's when you begin to get into grander claims, for instance, the claim that uh, perhaps humans in particular are just a specialized animal, that, that we are the, there's nothing fundamentally distinct between human and animal, that we are simply an evolved animal, right? Where we're going to mm-hmm. begin pushing back is we're going to ask, well, the Christian worldview presents humanity as made in the image of God. And so the Christian worldview creates a fundamental distinction between human and animal. And so when we think about things like, well, humans are endowed with a moral aspect, so animals cannot murder, they can merely kill, right? Humans can actually murder. We can do more than simply kill. There's a moral weight to our actions. Or when mm-hmm. an animal attacks another animal, an animal is reproducing with another animal, we wouldn't use a word like rape, right? We wouldn't use this kind of moral language to describe animal mm-hmm. behavior. But we believe that this is appropriate for human behavior because there's a moral aspect to being human. And so for us as Christians, we would understand that in order for us to have that strong distinction, we can't simply understand humanity as a particularly well-evolved or particularly um, uh, differentiated animal, but there's a fundamental distinction between what it means to be human and what it means to be animal. Yeah. 
So, so then how would you respond to say I'm, I'm sitting down with somebody who is, uh, coming from a, uh, non-religious background, they're considering faith, mm-hmm. but they say, you know what, I just can't, this idea that human beings are some sort of special creation that we didn't evolve mm-hmm. from lower life forms, you know, that, that, that sounds really uneducated and ignorant to me. So, so, you know, how in our, in our missional efforts, how, how would we respond to someone who has that type of response? Yeah. I think one of the first things I was appealed to is just what is your deepest intuition about what it means to be human? And when we start thinking mm-hmm. about these different things we experience as humans, we begin to become unsatisfied with simply saying that these are animal impulses, these are animal um, animalistic behaviors, like, like morality, which I was just appealing to. If we simply have an evolutionary account, you can talk about how, you know, maybe we develop particular kinds of morality to help us survive in tribes and communities, to help us get along, it promoted cooperation. But if you have this account of morality, the morality is simply accidental. What I mean by that is if you rewind the story of evolution and play it again, then you could end up with humanity looking very different. You could end up with us as a species maybe having you know, 12 fingers instead of 10. In the same way, if you believe morality is simply a result of the evolutionary uh, paradigm, then you could end up with a very different kind of morality. Perhaps cooperation is not preferred over self-interest. Perhaps um, you know, the ways we relate to each other could be fundamentally different. And so when you begin thinking about that, the question is, what is your deepest intuition about morality, right? What is your core belief about what is good and what is evil? And, and I believe that universally people have a sense that there is something that is good, there is something that is evil, that is not just an accident of nature, right? Like when we look at things like the Holocaust, we say under no paradigm is this acceptable, right? When we look at mm-hmm. things like um, genocide, when we look at things like rape, when we look at these kinds of abuses, it, it's we say there's something truly evil about this that transcends any kind of social contract, that consent, that transcends any kind of um, human convention we may be coming up with. And so we say, want to say that there's something truly good and something truly evil. And I believe you need some kind of transcendent basis to appeal to for that. You need something beyond mm-hmm. just an animal instinct to order to actually give a foundation to these ideas of good and evil. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do, do you think that and I'm just reflecting because mm-hmm. I'm you know, in conversations that we have had recently. I'm starting to realize that maybe there were some ideas that I insisted on that I thought were biblical, and and in contrast to what maybe a scientist would say about evolutionary ideas. But maybe they, I don't need to be as uh, you know devoted to those ideas as I have been, because they're not actually insisted upon in scripture. So, you know, what I'm getting at, Mm -hmm. are there some, are there some ideas like, let's just say like the age of the earth, scripture doesn't say anything about how old the earth is. And yet we make it, you know, sound as though this is like one of our fundamental beliefs. Yeah. So there was a challenge here when someone perhaps is coming to read Genesis, they're reading the fall and and they're noting that, Hey, this is actually a really useful way for me to make sense of life. Right? Like if you look at the fall, it begins to explain that, 
uh, how I am both wretched and yet there's something great about being human, right? It explains his tension, it explains his paradox. People are often attracted to Genesis and this account, but sometimes we ask them to commit to a little bit more than the text says. And, and I think um, if you wanted someone mm-hmm. to commit to a specific length for the age of the earth, that you have to believe the earth is you know, exactly 6,000 or 7,000 or 8,000 years old. And perhaps you're asking a little bit more than the text itself asks. Um, something that I mean, we can just spend a moment in the text really fast. If you go and you look in Genesis, you know, Genesis mm-hmm. 1 begins by affirming, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, already, this is, this is a statement that someone scientifically minded should eagerly accept because we are living in this unique period of history where we recognize the universe did have a beginning. For the vast majority of history, humans simply thought the universe always was, because if you had a beginning, well, where did it come from? It raises a problem. But now we have evidence, uh, particularly you know, this idea of the Big Bang, which we get through when we talk about some of the, the ways in which we have really high confidence that the universe had a beginning. But mm-hmm. the text actually affirms this. So Genesis 1.1 is beginning by affirming something that us who are scientifically minded go, yeah, that's right. That's that's how we understand the world through our study of nature is affirmed here by what the text says. But Genesis goes on to say, the earth was without form and void. And so it presents that although God created the universe in the beginning, that then you have this earth present, and it's not until after some unspecified amount of time that then the events mm-hmm. of creation week begin. God says, let there be light. God says, let there be an expanse, and so on and so on. And so the creation week in Genesis doesn't seem to necessarily be pointing at the very beginning. It seems like there's an unspecified amount of time. And so Genesis, as far as I'm concerned, appears to be agnostic about the age of the earth. It simply says the mm-hmm. earth was there. It was not formed. It was void. It didn't have the structure it has now. God did some creative work to bring structure, to um, bring it out of confusion into order. But it doesn't specify the age of the earth. And so I'm not particularly bothered if someone says, you know, look how old these rocks are. Look how, how old the universe is. Um, I don't. Genesis mm-hmm. does not seem to be forcing one to commit to a particular view on that. Mm-hmm. Good. Now I'll give you one more that, um, and then we can move on to, you know, the bird's eye view again. Yeah. But um, like, it, it it is not scripture doesn't require us to maintain that every living animal or kind of animal, and I don't I know the word species is kind of mm-hmm. ambiguous, yeah, so yeah. maybe we don't want to use it, but. Um, every single type of animal was in the garden of Eden for like, we don't have to insist that golden retrievers were in the gar- garden. Absolutely. Of Eden as absolutely. Activity, right. That's right. I mean, there's, you know, species of dogs are a great example. We can look back at history and we can see how through domestication, various kinds of species of dogs were introduced. And so, you know, if you've seen some painting of, you know, Genesis with your favorite species of dog there, okay, this is probably a little bit of artistic license going on. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yes, Genesis does affirm that God created kinds of animals. So it does affirm the mm-hmm. differentiation between different kinds of animals. But it doesn't say the level in which God made it. And the interesting thing is the doctrine of the fall, the Christian understanding of what happened when there was this moral rebellion against God, is it suggests that the earth was changed in some really fundamental ways. You know, the text talks about this curse that came upon the earth. Um, Paul talks about it as as creation is groaning. And so you see that there's some fundamental changes taking place. And so I think for quite a few Christians, we're very comfortable where we hear accounts of natural selection being like, hey, this is how God 
built into the creation order a means for it to adapt in the face of sin, in the face of this moral fall until the time of redemption. Good. So, so just that <laughs> distinction is important. God uh, built in this adaptation and natural selection as a response to sin, not as his, 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 first mechanism that's what you're oh i'm not sure i'm not sure like how much you know i don't think genesis goes into detail on this and so i'm not going to be dogmatic you know is it possible Mm -hmm. that there was some natural selection of of some kind that happened before the fall um you know i i don't want to specify when god built this in if there was like a change of design at the fall i'm not sure about that but it seems Mm -hmm. to be that certainly there is natural selection god is provided the animal kingdom with a way to adjust to its settings. And that worked out really well in light of the fall. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. But mm-hmm. sorry to just yes, please, please. flesh this out a little bit more, but you know, you and I have talked about death before yeah. sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The natural selection required death. Uh, in order to achieve its evolutionary... Yeah, I mean, so part of the discussion there would be, what is death, right? And so um, from my reading both of Genesis and of the New Testament authors on this, it certainly seems like um, death is something that is alien to God's creation. And and the reason that the Bible stresses that so much, the scripture stresses this so much, is because it's because death is alien that we can hope for death to come to an end, right? It's because death is not part of the creation that we can hope that through this act of Jesus, this new Adam figure, that there can be a defeat of death and we can anticipate a new creation that uh, exhibits victory over death. So there's some hope beyond death. There's some hope for new creation where there is no death. Now that said, Mm -hmm. one can ask, okay, what kind of death is in view here? Is it merely human death? Well, no, places like Romans 8 seems to suggest that this expands to the animal kingdom as well, Isaiah as well, and, and Genesis seems to have in view the animals. But, you know, bacteria death, did the biblical authors have in view uh, bacteria as a form of life? Did it have in view, you know, parasites to have in view um, plants as a form of life? I'm not sure. It seems mm-hmm. that Genesis often associates life with the breath of life. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm just not going to be too dogmatic on, you know, what kind of things are happening in terms of bacteria, what kinds of things are happening in terms of um, other, we might think of as simpler life forms before the fall. I'm not sure how God had ordered the ecosystem, uh, you know, at that point. But I, I would mm-hmm. have to affirm that, you know, from the story of Scripture, it really seems like animal, uh, uh, human death and, and, and to, to some degree animal death was a consequence, especially predation would be a consequence of the fall. And therefore, we can have the hope that we'll be restored to a world that is free from death and free from the suffering associated with death. Okay, good. Yeah, that's that's a good, I guess, intro to the conversation that no doubt you and I will continue <laughs> via Facebook Messenger. Hey, um, I, <laughs> and I'm quite sure that neither you or I has have, have figured it all out, which is cool because there's lots more to learn. Um, so maybe just kind of shifting gears, uh, what, how would we respond to somebody who might say that, wow, man, look at all these scientists. They all seem to be atheists. Um, so that must mean that science is inherently at conflict with faith. And if you follow science to its logical conclusion, then you'll conclude that there is no God. So, I mean, how, how do we, there seems to be an overwhelming weight of evidence that is on the side of of people, you know, who study these things for life, who 
just conclude that there is no God. Yeah. Um, so first of all, the statement's just simply not true. That it's not true that all scientists are atheists, right? Um, the, I can name numerous um, individuals, uh, leading scientists who are committed Christians who are committed to a biblical worldview. Uh, there's some fascinating research on this. You, you mentioned I did my PhD in Houston at Rice University. So there, Elaine Eklund is a social scientist who's done a, a been part of this significant study on the religious views of scientists. And so she's done a global study of what are the religious views of scientists. And there's a number of things that I recommend to one, spend some time in the study that she's done. But there's a couple things that stand out. Um, first of all, she found out that scientists who are atheists are not atheists primarily because of scientific reasons, but for the same reasons the general population is. So these are individuals who at some point in their lives, often before they begun their scientific careers, may have moved to an atheistic or an agnostic position, and they just maintain that position as a scientist. So it's not that overall, you know, one is studying science and makes them an atheist. Rather, atheists who study science remain atheists, right? And Christians who study mm -hmm. science typically remain Christian. Um, it's also found, though, that even scientists who privately hold to atheism or agnosticism, they generally do not advocate the view that science leads to this. And so while there are some individuals like Richard Dawkins, you may be familiar with, a well-known, outspoken mm -hmm. evolutionary biologist and atheist, who tries to connect his science with atheism, she found that generally scientists um, respond poorly to his approach. And they find that mm. what he's doing there is he's tying a philosophy, a way of making sense of the world, uh, naturalism, with science in a way that's ultimately, I believe, destructive for science. And the final thing she found in the study is that if you go a global survey, yes, in some countries, there's a higher percentage of scientists or atheists than in the general population. But in other countries, there's a lower percentage of scientists or atheists than the general population. For instance, in Hong Kong, in Turkey, there's a higher percentage of scientists who report belief in God than in the general population. And so this seems to not mm. be a consequence of them studying science or anything tied up to science, but rather seems to be more of a result of sociological factors and other reasons that may lead individuals to believe or not to believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That's really, really fascinating. And I, I too, like anytime I've talked with a scientist um, who, who seems to be, you know, has a more secular worldview, uh, they kind of... You know, nothing against Richard Dawkins. Yeah. God loves Richard Dawkins, but kind of all just kind of roll their eyes when, you know, they uh, they think about the, his approach to to it. You know, he's made a lot of great contributions to biology, mm -hmm. but then moving from there to kind of the very confrontational philosophical claims he makes is uh, somewhat frustrating. I think to those who are who are plugged in. Uh, you know, very closely to the scientific field. You know, Richard Feynman um, is a, a physicist. He was a big deal. He was at Caltech in the last century. And he has a quote I really love. Richard Feynman, he says, when a scientist talks about non-scientific matters, he's just as dumb as the rest of us. And, and I, I love this quote <laughs> because it kind of um, breaks through yeah. the, you know, often we can kind of, uh, you know, put these, uh, those who have a PhD in particle physics or mathematics or whatever on some pedestal and assume that because they're very competent in this one discipline. Therefore, they must, you know, be knowledgeable in all things. And that's just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. You know, simply um, being very proficient and, and having great insight in one field doesn't mean that you'll be able to, you know, 
speak intelligently or have significant contributions to very unrelated questions, those that belong more in the realm of philosophy or theology. I mean, the reality is, too, is that this uh, dichotomy or bifurcation or the separation between faith and science is a very, very recent phenomenon. And historically, science, uh, you know, as we use the term today, has been very, very much an outworking of faith rather than in opposition to it, right? Yeah, I would love to talk. And that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because if you look historically at modern science, so I'm talking people like Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Maxwell, these individuals, those who are developing the modern scientific method, they were simply working out the Christian conviction. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he, he puts it this way. He says, man became scientific because he expected law and nature and he expected law and nature because he believed in a lawgiver. Hmm. And so it's the Christian conviction they had, those working from this Judeo-Christian worldview, that there was a creator who gave order and structure to the universe that then led them to expect, well, we can go and we can find that order in that structure because we're made in the likeness of God. So Newton, for instance, would say, hey, Aristotle said there's one way the heavens go, there's one way the earth goes, but I believe in a God who created both heaven and earth, and therefore Newton was led to this general theory of, relati- uh, uh, this, um, general theory of gravity that explains both the heavens and the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And so you see these individuals, and Newton is a great example because he writes his Principia, he, in this, he develops his laws of motions, Fantastic, perhaps the most significant scientific documents. In this, after writing his Principia, he he writes to a friend. He says, "My greatest joy is that this document, this scientific work I've produced, is leading some people to faith in a God." Mm, wow. And so, for Newton, he saw his scientific work as prompting people to believe. Because he says, "Once people see there's this order and there's a structure to the world, you know, how can they not come away with the conclusion that there it must be some mind behind it?" Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's so helpful. I think, again, there's a lot of voices today, especially that try to get us to choose between the two. And the reality is that they they don't need to be in conflict with one another. Um, so, and, and so tell me, Anthony, like, how would if, if somebody is coming and considering, you know, the Christian faith, um, how might that Christian faith actually help one make sense of the universe rather than assuming it would lead us, you know, down the opposite path. Yeah. I mean, I've already mentioned, for instance, like Genesis one, right? Where Genesis one, one begins with this affirmation in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so I, I see this as making a lot of sense of what we now understand that the universe had a beginning. If you don't have an account like this, you're left with the question of, well, if all things that began to exist had a cause and the universe began to exist, then what was the cause of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But not only is it the problem that the universe has begun to exist, but over the last handful of decades, as we've been doing physics, we've been making progress, we've been coming to understand that the universe is finely tuned for life. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is the fundamental constants of as you look at the fundamental constants of physics, things like the force of gravity or the weak or strong electromagnetic force or something called the cosmological constants, as you look at these various constants, you know, there's a few dozen of them you can, you can look at, if they had been finely adjusted one way or the other, 
then we wouldn't get a universe that's compatible with life. Mm. And but what I mean by that is not that we just wouldn't have like a nice earth with water on it, the right distance from the sun, but we wouldn't even have suns. We wouldn't have stars without stars. We wouldn't have heavy elements. You know, there would be nothing to to form the structures of life out of. In fact, if the cosmological constant of gravity was a little bit off, the universe after expanding would immediately collapse back upon itself. And so there would be no time for, at all for life to to originate. In other words, and so the exist. more that's right. That's right. There, there would be nothing clear. to exist. There, there would be nothing. There would, no chance for life because there's nothing. It's not just a matter that you know life might look a little bit different. There's there's nothing there for life to um, inhabit. There's there's no there's no no materials, no spaces, no time. Mm-hmm. And so people like uh, Fred Hoyle, he was a, a, uh, an astronomer who looked at this, and he's the one who said. Um, nothing has shaken my atheism as much as this discovery. Hmm. And so there's a, a number of scientists who, on the basis of fine-tuning, have posited there must be some kind of super intellect. That was the word Fred Hoyle um, came to accept. Some kind of super intellect behind the universe. Now, maybe they don't all come to embrace Christianity in its richness and its fullness, right? But still, you have the uh, acknowledgement that as we learn more about the universe, there's something crying out for explanation. And I believe the Christian worldview does a really good job making sense of that. I mean, even the fact that we can do science, even the fact that we have brains that are able to understand the universe. You know, if you put a dog into a library, the dog's going to have no understanding of what, what's going on in the library. It doesn't understand the books. It doesn't understand the language books are written in. But somehow we have minds that are able to understand the world around us, that's able to make sense of it. As a mathematician, I love the fact that we can mathematically model the universe and somehow mathematics works. It's able to get people on the moon. It's able to let us build large hadron colliders. It's able to let us do all these really cool things. And it's, how is it? You know, what, what explains this, this wonderful gift? Um, the physicist Eugene Wigner said that this is a, a miracle which we neither understand nor deserve. And so I see the more that we have success in doing science, the more that we're able to model the universe and make sense of it. This is just crying out for an explanation that the Christian worldview comes and enables one to begin to make sense of. Mm -hmm. That's great. It seems like I've, you know, I've, it's been a while, but I've done a fair amount of reading in intelligent Mm -hmm. design theory and these sorts of books. And sometimes I read those things and I think to myself, I mean, this stuff seems so obvious that it has to be uh, easily disputed by, you know, naturalistic scientists. Like, I don't know, this mm. fine-tuning argument you've used, mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm sure they have really good, uh, you know, ways to, to contradict this idea. But, um, but in reality, a lot of these uh, theories and points that are brought out by those who are seeing the idea of an intelligent designer, I mean, they have merit, right? They're just not, mm. like, the stuff is not just being made up. Yeah. So that's probably the, um, what's become one of the more common responses to fine tuning is this is multiverse hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So the idea is how is it possible that our universe is just finely tuned for life? Um, so one hypothesis is there's perhaps um, many millions or billions or perhaps infinitely many other universes, each one of slightly different laws of physics. And so if you have infinitely many universes, well, it's no longer as surprising that one of them you know, has the correct laws, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with this, with this idea is it's just pure science fiction. There's, there's no empirical basis for it. And it's hard to imagine how we ever could have an empirical um, evidence that supports this because universes are by definition causally independent and so we'd never be able to observe one of these other universes it's just uh 
it seems very much like science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you begin to see some of the strained attempts to answer questions like fine tuning, uh, you know, I, I think that, that begins to show that, wow, this really is a strong argument, right? If you have to invoke the existence of infinitely many other universes, it's like, well, you know, what that that's quite the step of you know quite the leap of faith you yourself are making and on what basis yeah and so you might ask well what motivates some individuals and this is not like a mainstream view this is not like uh so you know this is a fringe theory in science this is not like mainstream science um, although some some appeal to it in a way that maybe gives some of the impression that this is not you know this is not a mainstream but why would some you know feel the need to resort to something like multiverse and what i find is it's not um, simply the, the Christian message that there's a creator, God, or the structure of the universe. But a lot of people have a lot of other ideas or experiences with Christianity tied up with that, and mm -hmm. that makes them very resistant to it. Mm -hmm. I had a um, philosophy of science professor um, who was taking these classes from my freshman year that I mentioned. I remember having lunch with her, and the um, question came up, you know, are you? I assume she was an atheist, but she mentioned she was an atheist because uh, the problems we mentioned in this podcast, she said, you know, I can't see how atheism accounts for these various kinds of features of the world we live in. And yet she went on to say, but I also can't see how Christianity or any of the other religious depictions of God is able to uh, make sense either. And so it seemed like from her experience of Christianity or experience of other world religions, she wasn't satisfied with the picture of God that she encountered there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, what you're saying, it reminds me, you say it's not maybe a mainstream view about this multiverse theory, but yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember back when I was in New Hampshire, I lived and I was pastoring right uh, near Dartmouth College, you know, one of the Ivy League schools. And I became aware of one of the physics professors there who I had heard being featured on NPR or something like that. And yeah. um, I set up a lunch with him and we were chatting and, you know, just a brilliant man. And he was he was pushing this multiverse theory. And I just said, you know, is there any basis, you know, empirical basis for this idea? And he goes, Nope, you know, we have none, but, but it's like this, but, but they want, they, they, they want it for some reason, because as you say, there's other uh, factors, emotional, theological, mm -hmm. philosophical things going on. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's like you say, it's no more, um, empirically provable in some ways let's say it's like non-falsifiable right you can't yeah. you basically can't disprove it and it's it's you know the same as with god it's like the multiverse of the gaps theory isn't it yeah so many many um philosophers have pointed out that these ideas like multiverse what shouldn't be considered science it should be considered metaphysics they should be considered um you know this isn't this isn't a scientific hypothesis this is a philosophical idea that can never be tested scientifically um, there is good reason, though, I think, why people aren't hesitant. You know, a lot of traditional Christianity, look at the history of Christianity, we haven't always done the best job uh, of presenting well the beautiful picture of God that's contained in Scripture. And so I, I totally mm -hmm. resonate with people who are hesitant or have had negative experiences in church, negative experiences in church communities. I totally understand why they'd be hesitant to embrace that. And there's also the, the fact that the Christian uh, story has implications. It has implications for how you live your life. It has implications, uh, moral implications, ethical implications. There's a lot that comes with it. And so I understand why one, someone may be cautious or hesitant to accept that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Anthony, I want to um, wind down um, here and I want to ask you kind of one more last question that gets kind of back to our missional posture. And it seems as though that 
Christians over the last, I don't know, hundred years have, and I'm speaking of maybe those who would be considered more uh, Bible believing, mm-hmm. quote unquote, mm-hmm. Christians. Um, when it comes to mission and evangelism, it feels like our attitude about science has not necessarily been gracious or humble. Mm. And, uh, you know, we can talk about different types of Christian, you know, science uh, ministries or whatever. Yeah. We don't have to mm-hmm. name names, but um, it, it kind of seems like we get into a couple of different attitudes. And that is number one, we have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. Like we have an answer to every issue. Like, you know, how do we answer the issue of the dinosaurs? Well, it was God putting us putting these bones there to tempt us to like not believe in him <laughs> okay, or whatever. Yeah. 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 Just like crazy answers we come up with or uh, an attitude of ridicule, like, Oh, those uh-huh, stupid people uh-huh. who think we descended from monkeys. And, you know, we put out all of this stuff that might be considered shoddy science and so forth. So as we, uh, for those of us who are Christians listening to this podcast, as we are looking to be missional and as we're looking to make disciples, how can we navigate uh, this this issue with humility and, um, you know, willingness to listen and not come across as having all the answers? What, what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to be missional, make disciples, uh, believe in scripture, but also not yeah, yeah. insist too much and be too arrogant. Well, I would begin by saying, go read Job 38 and 39. Mm. Uh, read this often, read this regularly. It's just wonderful account of God just saying to Job, where are you? Where are you? What do you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's really just a reminder of when we come to these great questions, these great themes, we have to come with the utmost humility, right? And so Job 38, 39, let that put that you back in your place time and time again. Um, that's not to say that um, you shouldn't have any um, convictions on these matters and you shouldn't have strong convictions. But when we do, I hope we have them because we understand how valuable the teachings of creation are. And I feel often we fail to communicate, why is it so important that we tell people about the fall, about Adam and Eve, and we tell them about the story? It's because the story really helps people make sense of their lives, right? Mm. A lot of people feel this paradox, this tension, this this greatness and wretchedness at the same time. The fall is able to come along and begin to make sense of that. The fall is able to um, make profound statements about what it means to be human, about how being human, you're made in the image of God, and so you have some moral aspects to your nature. You have you know, uh, some, some will. You're actually able to make choices, and those choices have consequences. And so I, I would hope as well that not only do we have greater humility, but that when we do seek to communicate well those important truths that the Bible teaches, we speak them not only saying this is why you know we, we this is why it's true, but but this is why it matters. This is how it's able mm-hmm. to help you order your life. This is how it's able to give meaning and significance to those things like love. The love is more than just a chemical, right? That actually, love is tapping into this foundational reality that, that God is love and has created you for relationship, right? So all mm-hmm. these different aspects of being human, the creation kind of particular, is able to bring that into focus and affirm in a deeper way our humanity, and then also affirm that the job of doing science. 
So he was actually made in the image of God to go out and understand the world. And so he gives you this incredible permission to go out and do science, but to do it not just for your own pride, for your own, own glory, but do it for the glory of God. Do it to recognize that this is a magnificent creator who made us in his image, who's, who's given us this freedom to go out into the world, to explore it, and to grow more into the likeness of him. And I find that in a beautiful, attractive picture that people, people resonate with. Man, that's really awesome. I appreciate it. It's a uh, it's a good way to leave our listeners thinking about these important matters, and and yeah, just just uh, you know recognize that there's a reason why we explore these issues, and they're not just to be right to prove others wrong. That they are to reveal God's love more and to give us a deeper, fully fuller understanding of what the purpose of life is, why we are followers of Jesus. And so, yeah. And when we recognize that, it allows us to be humble and uh, to be liberated from trying to, you know, prove everyone else wrong and prove that we're right. And so thank you, Anthony, for those words. Really appreciate it. Um, It is Anthony Bosman, again, not boss man as his students call him (laughs) from time to time, I guess. But uh, so Anthony, thanks for being on the show with us. And, uh, We look forward to chatting maybe again in the future as we maybe get back to the original topic you and I were going to discuss, which was a good one as well. But uh, thanks, Anthony. Have a great summer in Michigan. I trust uh, you'll be spending some of your time there this summer. Um, And we'll look forward to having you on again. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. It was a blast. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch up with you next time. Thank you for listening to Mission Lab. Our theme song is Portland Hike by Tiny Music. Additional editing by Chris Ogay. Follow us on Twitter at MLabPodcast. Podcast.